0: Welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 98. My name is David Breer. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about microinsurance. So, microinsurance provides some financial safety for people who live in poverty. But what does it actually include? What markets are is it needed? What actually is microinsurance? And how does it reach people who live in emerging markets that might not have access to the internet, TV, or even a smartphone? As always, I'm not alone to try and talk about this subject matter, but joined by some super duper awesome guests. First up, making her InsureTech Insider debut, we have Itameling Hafela, who is the head of actuary at Bima. How are you doing today? I'm
1: well, thank you. Um, so I've just relocated to London uh, from Oxford, and I must say it rains quite an awful lot here. So yeah, just getting used to to the London weather.
0: It does. Like Britain generally, like if, if somebody told you the weather was brilliant, like it's it they lied, they just <laughs> lied. So, uh, but uh, lovely views though, which is which is good. But uh, but yeah, weather weather's not so good. But thank you very much for joining us on the show. We'll come back to you in a second to talk a little bit more about Bimmer and everything that Bimmer does. But before we do that, I just in, introduce. The, the second guest that we've got on also making her InsureTech Insider debut, we've got Catherine Pulvermarker, who is the Executive Director, Microinsurance Network. How are you doing, Catherine?
2: Really good, thanks, David.
0: So, just as a as a introduction to to both of you, then I mean, Itu, can you start as with telling us a little bit about Bima, and then Catherine will come to you to to talk a little bit more about the market insurance network.
1: Okay, so the Bima business model is a bit complicated, so maybe I could tell you what I do at Bima, and then I'll um, tell you a bit more about Bima as well. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So yes, I am responsible for anything actuarial um, at Bima. So a lot of people actually don't know what actuaries do, but uh, basically um, what I do is I design our products, um, I price our products, um, I perform regular experience investigations on our products. So, for example, looking at, you know, what does the lapse experience look like on our, on our products? How are people claiming on our products? Uh, providing just regular ongoing support to our local markets. So, uh, for example, if the local market wants to maybe add an additional benefit on one of our policies. Uh, so I'd help with that. I'd help with designing that additional benefit as well as the pricing on that. Um, if we're looking to launch a new product and we need regulatory approval, so I'd help with that, for example. Um, and then I also you know, work closely with our reinsurance um, partner. So that's that's some of the, the stuff that I do. And then maybe just to give you a bit of context about my also my professional experience. Um, so I'm a qualified actuary um, with uh, 10 years of uh, professional experience. And prior to joining BIMA, I was a, a pricing actuary at the Reinsurance Group of America here in London. And before then, I worked for Vodacom um, in South Africa. So there I was really doing everything again actuarial in the life insurance business. Um, and there we really aiming to tap into our 30 million plus customer base and sell financial services products to them. And then as I was talking to Catherine, we noticed that we actually worked together at Deloitte at the same time at some point. So yeah, prior to my experience at, at Vodacom as well as RGA, I was also at, at Deloitte for quite a while. Um so that's why I got, I guess, quite a bit of extensive um insurance knowledge.
0: Fantastic. Well, when it comes to talking about microinsurance, you're gonna be uh, super duper well placed to, uh, to to talk about it then. I mean you must have uh, Catherine e you like you must have worked with Nigel Walsh when he was at at, uh, at Deloitte as well. It's a small world, isn't it? They seem to attract uh, really good insurance people, which is uh is amazing. Catherine, do you wanna tell us a little bit about the microinsurance network, and then we'll we'll get into the to the conversation as well.
2: Sure. So the microinsurance network is a non profit association. We have members from seventy odd countries from all different stakeholder groups along the insurance value chain. And what brings everyone together is a common vision to uh, help build inclusive insurance markets. So you, what's important to understand uh, is sometimes difficult for us if we live in the global north. But in most emerging markets and developing countries, the access to insurance is extremely limited. It's not just poor people. It can be also salaried people, especially uh, not necessarily used to insurance as a concept. And very often the insurance services that are available in those markets target corporate clients rather than, than retail. So there's a huge need, especially Given the exposure to risks like climate change, inadequate social protection, someone loses their job, they wouldn't necessarily get unemployment benefit the way we would in the UK or in Luxembourg. And the same applies to health risks.
0: Yeah, it's a a very broad topic and maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, as you were sort of describing, Catherine, I mean, w- what actually is micro-insurance? Because, um, I mean, when I asked my daughter this question, this I told her this morning oh, I'm recording a, a podcast on micro-insurance. She's only seven, but she thought it was the insurance of really, really small things. And and obviously, it's not that. Just back on that then, too, do you want to talk a little bit more about BIMA and give a, an introduction to Bimmer and how they fit into this landscape? And then following that, do you want to kind of give us a bit of a, an, a, an overview of, of actually what micro-insurance actually is?
1: Okay. So just to give you an intro uh, to Bima, so we a global specialist microinsurance intermediary, and um, that sounds complicated, but what it means is that uh, we partner with mobile network operators or mobile money providers, um, insurers in, in in our markets uh, to basically sell insurance or microinsurance to our customers. So we are currently in nine markets globally, uh, so seven in Asia and two in Africa. But I think in summary, basically we a specialist. Micro Microinsurance intermediary that basically uh, brings all these parties together to sell uh, microinsurance to our customers.
0: Very good. Uh, so, what do you think then? Microinsurance really is at the uh, at the heart of it, because obviously from a from a category again, it's a, a very broad category and it solves quite a broad set of problems. But but what what do you think, or how would you define microinsurance?
1: So I think the best way to describe what microinsurance is is to sort of compare it to traditional insurance. So traditional insurance is is quite expensive, quite complicated. So there will often be lots of terms and conditions, and uh, typically they're facilitated by, for example, bank-only deduction methods. Uh, so which basically assumes that you know our population would be banked, or our customers are banked, um, and so uh, microinsurance basically works around um, some of these things that. You know the traditional insurers assume. Uh, so, for example, in microinsurance, you'll have lower benefit values. Uh, so, for example, instead of paying a an indemnity benefit when someone is in hospital, i.e., covering the full costs of hospitalization, you'd give, for example, a fixed amount per night in hospital. That way, you know the product is is a bit more affordable. Or, for example, you might give a funeral benefit instead of life cover. Life cover is typically large um, sums of money, whereas um, um, funeral cover is really just intended for you to cover the cost of, of the funeral, for example. So, basically, one of the key distinguishing um, factors is that um, microinsurance has lower benefit values. And then also we try to accommodate, you know, our customers' affordability. Uh, so we'll try basically break down the payment into, for example, weekly uh, payments. Uh, so, for example, in my role at Vodacom, we charged um, less than a dollar a week um, for, for example, cover of um, maybe $350 of live cover. So, and in, 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 in by basically, you know, making the premium amounts in, in micro units, it therefore becomes a bit more affordable um, for for the customer. Uh, So, so those are some of the things that we do at Bima, for example, as well. We will um, also give customers just flexibility. So if they're not able to afford uh, the full premium for the month, if say they're only able to pay 50% of the premium, they'd still get some partial cover. So for example, 50% of the sum assured. And definitely one of the key principles as well of microinsurance is just uh, making sure that the products are as simple as possible. Uh, So limiting the exclusions, having the same price for everyone, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, not really asking for their smoker status, which you typically see, for example, in a traditional insurance policy. So I'd say those are, you know, some of the key attributes of a microinsurance policy versus a traditional insurance policy.
0: Yes, that's super interesting. I mean, Catherine, obviously, micro lending. You know, the the problems that micro lending is looking to sort of face into is is almost the non traditional credit models, you know, not being able to get access to credit, not being able to, you know, even potentially have the, the background to, to understand how credit would would work. I mean, is there a lot of similarities here with what microinsurance is doing in terms of, you know, there's a lot of talk of startups sort of democratizing everything, but is this about actually taking insurance to places that haven't been able to access good insurance before? And and to, to Itu's point, actually being really specific about the things that it's doing rather than having real swag. Ways of different policies for that have different um, covers.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think you know. I think that for for outsiders, the analogy with microfinance, microcredit, as you call it, um, is is a really straightforward one. And if you think about microloans, evolved from the late seventies, early eighties, and actually microinsurance had its origins coming out of the microfinance sector where they realized that people were getting these loans, and if they couldn't repay them, especially if they were to die while they owed the money, then they would still be liable for the the value of the loan, right? So those were the, the sort of origins of it. And I think in the same way that micro loans are small, one can think about micro insurance based on a sachet principle, but I think it's also important to get away from a sort of product centricity to thinking about the end customer and what their needs are. And so we use a fairly broad definition um, of of micro-insurance, which is that it's insurance services and products that are intentionally designed, specifically designed to meet the needs of low-income and emerging customers. And that's a very broad definition. But it covers pretty much everything, um, including whether it's a group policy that is bought and sold or whether it's individuals buying it. And most importantly, you know, this customer centricity, I can't stress it enough because sometimes the risks are similar uh, to ones that we might face. But very often the payment processes and the language that is used in documentation, how it's explained, The level of financial literacy, all of that is important to take into account. And that has important implications for making it work, which I think is something that BEMA has been really successful at doing because you need for the costs involved, the, you know, the back office costs, the processing costs, the, all the administrative costs, the distribution costs to be kept as low as possible because reaching scale is incredibly important. The margins, you know, the, the premiums, Relative to what is insured, may be higher than the cost of servicing a, a, a someone who's paying a premium of a couple of thousand euros or pounds a year. You're looking at premiums that may be ten or twenty pounds or euros a year instead, right?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting isn't it? at that and that point you you make there around. Often with financial services products, people take a mainstream product and try and figure out what they strip away from it in order to then, you know, give it a broader appeal. And that doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't work, you know? like So actually, as you say, using sort of more first principle thinking around uh, 11FS, we use jobs to be done frameworks really extensively. Like, what are, the, what are the brutal realities of day-to-day lives? And actually, how do you solve those problems? And by solving those problems, because to your point, actually, the um, the impact of uh, not having insurance for something that actually is so fundamental to your family's uh, income, actually, and, and that, you know, that potentially really being life or death at that stage, if you can't replace those things, is really much more fundamental than my car breaking down. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it is a building product specifically to people results in a much better outcome which sounds ridiculous you know it sounds like the most obvious thing when we all say it out loud but it's amazing how many organizations and industries don't do that right
2: absolutely i mean to take an example from from kenya where as you may know there are some very large slums and very large informal markets uh, in the last couple of years i mean it's happened fairly on a fairly regular basis over the years but there've been massive market fires and people live in a, in and around these markets So their, their, their own personal property is, is destroyed or damaged, forgetting about loss of life or burns or or anything like that. But the stock that belongs to the traders also goes up in flames. And if that's in a context where there's no property insurance, everything has gone. It's literally gone up in smoke with no recourse. So it's, uh, it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah. And that has, and as you say, that's not just, um, that's not just one person's livelihood. That's, you know, generations kind of impacted at that at that stage, isn't it? So I mean, I, I guess to to that point and and Ity, sort of going back to the, you know, we talked a little bit about the manufacturing, how these products are, are thought about, how they're they're really created. But but I guess in terms of the distribution, you know, people always think, you know, manufacturing and distribution. How does those things kind of change for this? How does the how does the distribution of microinsurance change differ from, from more traditional, uh, you know, insurance products or policies?
1: So we've had to be quite creative um, in the way we uh, distribute our products. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we partner uh, with mobile network operators um, and mobile money providers in our markets who already have some trust with our customers. Um, and so we found that to get our microinsurance products out, those relationships are quite important. And also, um, you know, the mobile network operators can also provide us with leads, uh, which are very critical, you know, if we we to find you know our customers. Um, so yeah, I think different um, to the way we think about it for a traditional customer, and we're finding that I know the world is preaching all digital, but with our customer base, actually, we find that a mixture works. So we still have our BEMA agents on the ground. We have our call center agents calling our customers to explain the products. So in this segment, you know, the education of of the products and the benefits is quite important, and hence you still need that human touch. Uh, outside so yeah so so basically hmm.
0: that's super interesting i mean i think in just in this early conversation i think we talked about roughly 40 percent of the world when we're, we're in terms of the the geos that we've sort of talked about in terms of coverage but there seems to be you know differences in the ways in which these things are both adopted but also the ways in which that they're being sort of created as well so i mean Catherine, how how much of that is down to I mean, definitely from our perspective, we've seen the regulators and the ways in which people have regulated within each geo really be like the the bedrock that everything is built upon. You know, the FCA and the HKMA and different players have sort of set a bit of an agenda. But uh, where are the regulators in, in this mix? Are they sort of driving the agenda or is it very different in different geos?
2: It's very different in different markets. Um, so there are, and it's important to understand that insurance supervisors, um, they also have different mandates. So in a country like Kenya, sorry to use Kenya as an example again, they have a market development mandate, similar similarly in Nigeria, in Ghana, and so they tend to be more active in pushing it. Uh, and I think that what is important is I think openness to innovation, you know, and and really concerned to use insurance as a poverty alleviation tool, prevention tool, because the last thing you want is to put putting all of this effort into helping people emerge from poverty. They start getting on their feet. They're becoming emerging middle-class households, which, which is still, you know, we're not talking about swimming pools and washing machines necessarily, but there's some stability. The kids are going to school and things are moving forward from one generation to the next. And then, a disaster that we may be able to absorb uh, any one of us because we have some some financial resilience or a network or social protection in the background, that can push them straight back into poverty. and And sadly, you know we've seen that in terms of the impact of Covid. And so, yes, the regulators in each country, very, very different. I think that the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, and their implementation arm, um, Access to Insurance Initiative, have been doing really great work in uh, working with regulators, building capacity, providing training and guidelines. Importantly, about what is needed to move the market forward, because you need regulation that protects the consumer, but that doesn't create such a bottleneck that there's no room for any any innovation, and that. That openness to innovation is incredibly important, especially in the field of insurance and insurtech, which is moving very quickly. And a good example is index-based insurance. So it, it's a completely different field from the one that Bima works in, but the regulations need to allow for regulating, you know, there's got to, it's got to be possible to regulate uh, for, for index-based. And similarly, The other thing that becomes important is that it's not just about the insurance regulator. You think about Beamers working in the field of life and health. There may be other government ministries that need to talk to one another in order for things to happen.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's a real challenge, isn't it? Uh, governmental departments talking to each other in order to make things happen uh, is uh, somewhat of a holy grail to a certain degree, isn't it? But I mean, Ita, your organization works across different geographies. I mean, how much have you seen different regulators operating in different ways?
1: Yeah, I was actually going to comment on this. I think this is something that I'm quite passionate about. Um, in fact, this morning we were working on um, designing a specific COVID-19 product. And one of the considerations was, you know, will we actually be able to get this to market in time. So in our markets, it can take up to six to nine months, for example, to get approval from the regulator. And so we like, if we do launch a COVID-19 product that maybe covers you in the event that you say are hospitalized as a result of COVID-19 or maybe COVID-19 vaccination side effects, that sort of thing. If it takes, you know, six, nine months um, to get this approval from the regulator, uh, the product almost doesn't become relevant anymore. And so it kind of holds you back from, you know, the practical Innovation, where you're trying to or respond to you know the immediate needs of our customers, and yeah, so I think we've generally found that um, it does take a while to get approval generally um, for our products.
0: It's um, it's interesting, isn't it? The regulators, glo- you know, globally are in a- an interesting place because they've almost got to be ahead of every curve from a. A problem and from a technological perspective in order to be able to sort of do it. But really what most of all you're looking for is people who work with the industry to try and move these things forwards, don't you? But uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting one as well. I mean, just from a, a sizing perspective, I mean, uh, you know, Catherine, some statistics that came out from from the microinsurance network. So out of 7.8 billion people on the planet, only 1.3 billion are what are called relatively rich. And that leaves 6.5 billion billion who live under very different circumstances so this is not just a you know a, a niche problem this is not sort of a, a small group of people that people can get around to solving a problem for I mean this is a, a big slug of the, the percentage of the uh, the planet that we're, we're, we're talking about so who are serving these people like how are we accessing how are we correcting that problem
2: well <laughs> I think you're helping by having this show to begin with, because I think it shines a light on on the problem. and I think i I like to hope that at at least we've had a bit of a silver lining out of this terribly difficult year and a half that more people are aware of just how many people are exposed. But to put some numbers on that, when we say that you know maybe um you know the top, we're talking about the maybe one ten percent of the world's population is living on something like upwards of $20 a day and purchasing power parity terms, right? And then you've got the, the very poor or the poor who are living on less than $2 a day who, who don't have enough to eat. You know, they're not going to be able to afford insurance premiums. And then you've got this massive bit in the middle, sort of 70% of the world's population. And, and our estimate is that that probably represents about five and a half billion people. And of that five and a half billion, something between half a billion and a billion currently have some kind of access to insurance or using insurance without making any comment about how adequate that is to, to protect them fully, right? Um, so there is a lot of work to do, but the good news that it is, is that it is happening. We've seen a lot of momentum picking up in the last five years with insurers and different stakeholders you know, really trying to, I believe, figure out what they can do to support the achievement of the development goals. I think that's been a a real eye opener, much more awareness of um, the importance of managing climate risk, and the impact that that's going to have on the world's poorest countries. So you're probably familiar with the V20 countries, the most vulnerable countries. And and those are some of the markets where these underserved people uh, are living. And underserved doesn't as you've gathered from what I said that doesn't necessarily mean poor it may mean it it doesn't mean that they're affluent in the way that that we may be affluent in the global north but what it does mean is that the services simply don't exist or are very very difficult to access
0: yeah I mean it's it's interesting isn't it because when you uh, again it goes back to the point we were making a little bit uh, a little bit earlier on is I think this statistic is you know average American has, $700 or something, you know, something in that region of, of savings. But the safety nets, if that $700 disappears around, from a societal perspective, are, are pretty significant, you know, the, and the same in the UK, you know, if somebody is in dire need, there are safety nets around them that can jump in and, and support to a certain degree. So from a from a Western perspective, there is those, you know, pieces that have really sort of been, been put in place. But obviously, in in some countries, the, those uh, you know those sort of social infrastructural pieces are are not really there. So, being in a, a place where you you don't have a you know insurance in place, but but also hit that point, you know, and, and as you say, Catherine, you know, highlighting highlighting the the fact of you know we're still sitting in the middle of a, a global pandemic or whatever the however far through that different countries really are then when this is not hypothetical, like, you know, there are potentially billions of people who are now at the point where there isn't a social net, you know, I don't mean social network like Facebook. I mean, like a social network to to support them at their, you know, their worst times. So uh, this feels like such a big, a big thing. You know, it feels like almost the. Shining a light on almost like the the emperor's new clothes piece of this, because this has been a problem for a really long time, and it's only at the point now, as you say, that we're, we're like it's desperation, it's desperate to solve these problems that people are going to kind of step in, and, and obviously you guys have been doing a huge amount to move these things forwards, but and there's lots of different you know uh, people who kind of step in to make make things happen, but it's 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 a difficult problem to solve, isn't it? I mean, it. I mean, how does that fit? with with the numbers that you've seen because obviously when you start seeing that really there's you know such a huge slice of the planet not just you know particular countries in them in themselves who are you know really being so underserved by the uh, the market then a, I mean that's an amazing opportunity to to do what you're doing and provide services and provide products that that really can connect with the real problems that people have but but also it just really shows how much more we've got to do
1: Yep, definitely. I mean, from the numbers we've seen, um, less than 75% of our Bema customers are accessing insurance for the first time. So, you know, there's clearly quite a, a huge market out there or huge population, you know, that hasn't been served at all. Um, and I think it really does challenge us um, as Beamer to really build this market, to create this market for microinsurance. I think we, we can't necessarily wait for the, the industry to be, to for other people to come in, but I think we need to uh, kind of... Um, build it ourselves and create the market for microinsurance, and yeah give access to these customers who are underserved
0: yeah i mean one of the things that sort of jumped out from the the sort of producers notes as well is like the um there's a there's a kind of piece here about so according to science direct the claims ratio for microinsurance across products in africa is relatively low compared to other regions I mean, why do you think that is? What What do you think that's sort of driving that? I mean, Catherine, do you want to do you want to start on that one?
2: Yeah, I'd really like to jump in with that, and uh, you know, also just to some of the previous points, saying there is a massive problem that needs solving. But the good thing is that we are seeing progress, and on the claims ratios, actually, uh, you may be familiar with our, uh, our flagship report, the Landscape um, of Microinsurance uh which is a massive data collection exercise that we do every year. So we've we've just got the numbers in for this year um, and we're working on the analysis. And it's true that back in 2015 the claims ratios for Africa were uh, lower than other regions, but that had some there were some very specific reasons for that. Um, and we've actually seen the opposite in the subsequent studies that we did in 2018. Um, Data from 2019, data from 2020, and uh, interestingly, I think there's a story about 2015 that is very, very specific to Africa. When a model was being tested, selling insurance through partnerships with MNOs, who used it as a kind of loyalty program, and a lot of times the the MNOs may not have had skin in the game, and. The customers weren't even aware that they had the insurance. So if customers aren't claiming when there's an incident that happens, you're going to get a low claims ratio. So I think that's an important factor. And that's not to say that all of these models failed because we know very well that they didn't all fail, but there was a big enough impact on it for that to be the case. And I think the other thing is that the devil really is in the details. So we collect the data. It's a, it's voluntary participation from insurers. Um, we have a, a quite a good response rate out of the, the insurers that we target. That said, we don't always get the claims data. So you're looking at data for, for products that cover very different types of risks. So you'd expect the claims ratios to be different. Um, you know, silly example, but people die less often than they get sick. Uh, you know, so you, you're more likely to claim for health. And that's one of the, the reasons that health insurance is a very, very good way to introduce people to insurance because they're getting a tangible benefit very quickly. So that would be important. And I think that the other impacts that we see is, you know, the, if you look at what is, what is made up, what makes up the cost of the premium, um, and it is more of an expert on this than I am. You know, one, one bit is how, how much you had to pay out in claims. Um, then you've got all the administrative costs, the reserves that you have to keep aside for future years. Um, and then the costs of distribution and cracking that nut and doing it effectively really, really relies very heavily on technology and insure tech as much as building the trust that in, in, through this human touch that, that itchu referred to, to earlier. So you'd expect there to be different, um, levels of claims ratio. It also depends on how old the products are. So there are some technical reasons that you'd expect variation from year to year, but also the pricing structures from one country to another relative to the, the market power, if you like, of who the main distributors are.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And even the the differences in, I mean, you see the same instrument being used in a very different way in in different geos. So people's propensity to even claim changes, doesn't it? In terms of those things, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, on, on that point, that you just you just made a second ago about the uh, whether people even were aware that they had the product or not. I mean, obviously that's somewhere you know going back to the conversations that we've had from a, a regulator perspective as well. I mean, how much do you think that? that will be because obviously there's a there's a huge responsibility that sort of lies on uh, insurers to ensure people are really understanding the products that they're purchasing and the ways in which they can use them and and almost the advancements from a regulator's perspective about protecting customers outcomes and you know the sort of treating customers fairly narrative that we've seen sort of ripple out across many regulators that must have caused a little bit of concern if people weren't uh, if people think you know and and I'm not putting words in your mouth here because I know regulators take it quite uh, personally when uh, people say things but you know if if there's a a view that people might have been missold to these things in the way that PPI was in the UK then actually the knock-on effect of that should be greater regulation and greater controls right
2: yeah i don't think this was about misselling because actually it worked on a freemium model so the clients weren't actually paying for the insurance. It was a sort of loyalty reward for having, I don't know, a mobile money account or buying, right. recharging. Um, so, so there wasn't any of that issue. I think, you know, there's another issue that, that any of us, um, face, which is, you know, how it is you, you buy something and you buy the insurance and then you forget that you've got it and you could have claimed, but you didn't know about, you, you forgot. And I think, that the, the really good, whether it's the insurers that are doing it or whether it's the distribution or the intermediaries, what seems to work the best is sort of bundling the insurance with regular touch points, whether that's giving some kind of technical advice or telemedicine or agricultural advice. It doesn't really, or financial management tips, you're constantly then uh, whether uh, whether it's an SMS, because in a lot of these markets people don't have they either don't have smartphones or they can't afford to use them regularly, regularly because data might be expensive or coverage might be poor. That regular information stream, which is not just about taking their money through premium collection, is incredibly important.
1: Yep, I've actually got some examples from our market. So. In Tanzania, we noticed actually quite low claims ratios on our life and PA products. uh, So both below 30%. And um, and so in response to that, we actually had to think about redesigning the product, which we've done, where, for example, we've made sure that there's also, say, a cashback benefit if the customer doesn't claim. So an annual, you know, no claims bonus, which I think is quite important to just make sure that the customer continually gets value, um, regardless of whether they claim or not. And also making sure that you cover, say, life and disability for both accidental and non-accidental causes of death. You know, that way the claims ratios are at a manageable, or at least at a a fair level, and add value to the customers. And also in our hospital cash product, as much as this had a relatively okay claims ratio, we we added some additional uh, features there as well, also to just make the product a bit more tangible. So, for example, a medication allowance. So, for example, if you prescribe medication, being able to then claim back some of this, therefore um, adding that immediate value to you, for example, an annual health screen where you'd get screened for basic conditions. So we're doing a lot of those those additional benefits just to really be in touch with the customer on a more reg- regular basis so that they can you know, immediately see the benefits of, of what we um, add. And I think in one of our other markets as well, in Pakistan, what we notice is that customers initiate a claim, but then they don't complete the claim. So you'll find that 57% of the claims initiated, they're not completed. Um, so this would be because the customer doesn't send, uh, you know, the complete documentation or we actually can never reach them again. Um, so it seems. So I think as bema we are taking active steps and we have taken active steps um, to make sure that, you know, customers have a seamless claims process so that they don't have to maybe submit too many documents. That way, ensuring that, you know, the claims process is completed. Yeah, so so that's quite important uh, for us at, at Beamer.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a, a really, really interesting point. And it's how do you connect with customers? Because, I mean, there's a reason why it's called financial services and not financial products, right? Because the, the service that customers really want to engage with is what makes it really relevant. Uh, on that note, though, we are going to take a little bit of a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about actually how we reach customers in developing markets. Uh, much, much more. See you in a second. Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back, and let's get on with the show. So we were touching a little bit on, um, well, how do you actually reach customers in developing markets? Because it's one thing sort of going these products would be great for people it really solves a lot of problems they'd be better off with them but like actually how do you how do you do that distribution how do you get we all sort of say at 11fs a big organization spend a lot of time and effort and then forget to really remember whether everybody cares about it or not how do you make customers care about this stuff I mean it is something with you guys because obviously this is something that you're successfully doing you know you're you're being able to make people care about these things how are you sort of going about connecting with people in these emerging markets and and actually bringing them into the fold to have the discussions about them in the first place.
1: Yep. So I think Catherine alluded to this over the break. I think the heart of BIMA is partnerships. And I think without the partnerships with the MNOs, without, you know, the partnerships with the mobile uh, money providers, you know, we wouldn't really be able to reach the customers and have the trust that we need uh, to attract um, these customers. So I think that is, that is the starting point. Um, and I think the heart of, of, of BEMA in terms of how we reach this, these customers and make them, you know, um, start understanding the value of, of
0: insurance. Yeah. And, and how much of that, when you do that through those partnerships, I mean, how much of that is, uh, I mean, obviously, we've got, as you say, sort of mobile network operators that have got services that people are engaging with. Is that sort of a, a parlay for trust? You know, is that a, a sort of they have the trust with the consumer and the customer, therefore, they can bring other parts of that conversation to microinsurance?
1: Yeah, I'd say we are the ones who drive the conversation, as in the Beamer sales Salesforce, but of course leveraging off the fact that, um, obviously it's in partnership with the mobile um, network operator.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That again, we're uh, you know the old model. We're going back to manufacturing and distribution again. You know, actually, in terms of that, getting in front of people with those problems is is part of the challenge, isn't it, in terms of that? I mean, Catherine, how much do you think of this Is uh, and, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit, uh, we had a really good chat during the break, we, we, uh, uh, we talked about this a little bit during the break, is in the banking sense, people always make the argument that just having a product is people being included. But, but, That's just the first part of the step, really, isn't it? You know, how much do you think is, is education in this sense?
2: I think education has got a lot to do with it, but I think, uh, you know, there are two sides to education and there's often a lot of talk about, you know, customers aren't financially literate. And in many cases, that's true. And I think that's true in developed markets uh, as well, right? Uh, we've got easier access to information, but, but how much do we really understand how financially literate is, is Joe Blogs on the street, right? And I think that in these markets, you've got to remember that the sales side is equally likely to be unfamiliar with insurance. So you might have a loan officer who, if he or she has never ever bought insurance or used it, how are they going to sell it or explain it to the person sitting in front of them, um, so I think, you know, I think that's an important element that it's, there's a massive um, education. And I think that education is built up by understanding the language that people speak and understand what resonates with them. And I'm not just speaking about, you know, is it um, Swahili or is it Kiroandan or whatever, you know, it's it, or Zulu or Swana, whatever. I, it, it's not that. It's about understanding the, the images and the meanings that resonate with people, the, the metaphors, because we, you know, we're all human beings at the end of the day, right? It's, we can, have a lot to learn for in the financial services business from the fast moving consumer goods sector. And an example that I like very much is, you know, people don't wake up in the morning thinking that they want to buy L'Oreal shampoo what they what they think about is, oh, my hair feels a bit unpleasant, I need to wash it this morning, and therefore I need shampoo, right? And I think in the same way, in financial services in general and in insurance in particular, uh, there, there needs to be a much better understanding of the customer and this customer journey and, and how to reach them. You know, advertisers understand it. Advertisers understand the power of communication, of messaging, and somehow this gets lost in uh, when it comes to insurance or, or, or communicating about financial services in general, I would say, in developing countries.
1: I definitely agree with with Catherine on that one. I don't think the microinsurance industry is doing enough to educate customers about insurance at all. And I'm actually thinking of a of a, a bit of a funny example now if you if you think about it. But in one of our markets in Latin America, the customer had life cover and he didn't understand that basically that would be payable, you know, to his beneficiaries should he die. Um, and so he went into the office um, and um, basically was there to claim on his life thinking that, you know, it pays, like, on his life, not thinking that life means, you know, on his death, if you know what I mean. So there was a bit of confusion on that, and he actually, you know, took out a machete and, um, like, almost ch- chopped off the, like, a finger of the claims manager, or like, a p- partially, but luckily it was fine. It sounds funny now, but I think we take some of these things for granted. Um, so basically, in simple terms, in a language that the customer understands, as Catherine is saying, explaining that when we say, you know, you covered... Um, if you've got live cover, it actually means that, you know, on upon your death, um, you know, your beneficiaries um, would be able to claim. So I think it's about making more direct messages and like, yeah, being quite deliberate about explaining what the benefits are. So I really don't think we're anywhere near where we should be in terms of explaining to the customer, you know, what, what the policies are that we sell. Um, and I'm also just thinking even on the ground when a Be Agent is selling a policy, obviously there's also time constraints. Um, so they're not necessarily going to spend, you know, 30 minutes on one customer explaining the policy. So I think there needs to be continual messaging, continual education, explaining to customers, you know, what the benefits are um, that we are covering.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so, uh, that's such a universal problem, isn't it? I can't relate, Catherine, to your uh, your analogy of waking up in the morning, needing to wash my hair. But uh, other than that, I was with you all the way through it. But, uh, but the uh, you know, the idea that um, the person communicating the financial services product isn't like me therefore they're not talking to me in a way that i truly understand and and as you say that's that's not just a, a developing markets thing it's like um, you know i think most people walking around the streets in london don't know what apr is as you as you said so it's and that's not that's not a, a diss it's just we don't explain it and why is it not simple for people to understand these things it's almost a an industry that hides behind uh sort of terminology to make people feel more important you know and that's that's just not good you know it needs to be relatable uh, i think that's almost the with choice and people going out of their way to to connect with people and and you know talk to people in the way that they you know just like human beings you know like that's where almost the the pressure on all organizations comes to to really improve on, on all of those those measures really i mean we we've done a really good job i think so far in this to to not talk about technology so much because i mean it's always the it's always really the driving force when people talk about, you know, digital banking and like, you know, beam it into your brain and all different types of weird stuff and blockchain and AI and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, actually, how is this being distributed? I mean, it's a, you, you've talked about sort of a a bit of a hybrid model, which is, you know, I guess with the the rise of different things that we've seen with, you know, players like M-Pesa, we've seen that, that sort of two-channel approach working really effectively for people. Well, obviously, Mobile phones and and the MNOS as a distribution partner, but that sort of hybrid between people and technology seems to be where you know most players are getting most momentum.
1: Yep, would definitely agree with that, and and that's our strategy at Beamer. Um, just use that hybrid um, model um, to maximise you know the sales and the potential to reach our customers effectively.
0: And and the the mobile channel, I mean, obviously, I mean, my my you know in, impression of that, I mean, I've. Uh, uh, I've had better mobile phone reception in in sort of uh, a jungle in Rwanda than I than I do in 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 Norwich. So you know, from a technological perspective, connectivity and data connectivity particularly is is pretty advanced in in most regions at this stage.
1: Yeah, we definitely agree with that. But I think we also still try to keep, you know, even those customers who still have feature phones engaged as well. So for example, you can buy a policy uh, via USSD. Um, so that's d- literally on your phone, press one if you want to buy funeral cover, press two if you want to buy whatever. And then um, we deduct, for example, the the premiums using airtime. So we, we try to still remain relevant to those customers who have feature phones, customers with smartphones. Um, so yeah, we try to cater for as many of our, of our customers' needs as possible
0: in that respect, and and I and I guess um, you know a bit of an extension of that, and obviously something that we've seen as a a bit more of a, a kind of a, a revolution in service is almost the 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 identification of customers, the particularly on the, the sort of KYC identifying people at the beginning of it, and 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 really are they who they say they are, and is that process really? I mean, ha, how how uh, how well developed are kind of identity schemes within? Places where we're seeing a real surge in microinsurance. Maybe itu, you've got probably a uh, very good first-hand uh, experience of that in terms of uh, the work that you guys are doing at Bima.
1: I was actually going to ask Catherine uh, to comment uh, more on this because I guess in my experience, this is not really something that is a big part of what we do. But maybe that's because I'm an actuary in the back office, and maybe I'm just you know not at the forefront of this. So I think I'll let Catherine you know talk from her experience.
2: So I mean, generally, I would say that identification can be a massive barrier. So not all countries have identity cards. I mean, in the UK, you don't have identity cards for a start, right? I think my guess, and this really is, it's a bit of an educated guess. I did some work some years ago on inclusion with respect to identity cards, because it's obviously relevant for financial services and financial inclusion. You know, how do you know someone is who they say they are? And different countries have different levels of flexibility. So you could have uh, a community identifying someone and confirming that 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 is uh, who they say they are. But I think with the technological advances that are you know super exciting, and this is partly what is driving the momentum that we're seeing in in inclusive insurance um, and insurtech, you have the opportunity for biometrics. I mean, I don't most of the time enter my password into my phone, my passcode. It takes a fingerprint. And I think that we'll see that more and more. And will that technology automatically sort of filter down, drip down? Sometimes you see these innovations being adopted faster in markets that don't have anything else because there's already a vacuum or a void.
0: Yeah it's it's fascinating that isn't it the the idea that as you say if if there isn't any sort of legacy infrastructure then essentially these uh, you know these leaps can be taken a lot quicker and a lot earlier i mean it's definitely what we i guess we've seen with feature phone and therefore smartphone proliferation we're seeing Mobile be the the real channel of choice for, for things. So it's uh, it is amazing to see. I mean, like you say, the 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 KYC particular has been a, a bit of a bane of of most countries' adoption of of, of digital. Uh, and actually, because there isn't something in place, doesn't mean it won't happen. Uh, happen super quickly, I, I guess. To to wrap up, because I, I think look, I think we could probably take one of these threads of conversation and probably uh, talk for the next six weeks on uh, on 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 it in in itself. Given I think the the knock-on effects that all of these different pieces have, but but where do you really want this to get to? I mean, obviously, this is a there's lots of different directions that this can go into. I mean, Iti, where, where do you see the 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 future of microinsurance really getting us to?
1: I think for me too, it's um, empowerment um, and protection. And for me, empowerment means that we need to be coming up with innovative product that also help in creating some generational wealth. So I think micro insurance obviously is great because it offers protection, but I think we also need to enhance it so that yes, I get paid out a a funeral benefit on the death of of my husband, but am I remaining with anything after? Paying for that funeral, so it's really about also um, maybe calling it <laughs> micro savings or whatever it is. But I think there's just another layer that empowers and leaves a more generational kind of legacy as opposed to just the immediate protection. So that's the way for me uh, the future of micro insurance is, and that's what I'm passionate about.
0: What do you think, Catherine? What what do you wish the the future for with uh, with regards to micro insurance?
2: Well, I'm going to be a little bit radical and contentious here, but. I think we should aim for a future where there's no need for a term like microinsurance, because what we really want to see is 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 a world, a planet where there is resilience, there's sufficient solidarity and interconnectedness, and a level of social protection everywhere for for men, women, children, from any kind of background. Uh, that that really, I mean, to quote the the UN strapline, that really no one is left behind. And so I think. Part of that desire to see no more use of the term micro insurance is also to, you know, let's think about the people. These are people that we're talking about. You know, so, so whatever it is, whether it's resilience for all, I like the term resilience because it encompasses so much beyond just risk transfer. And I think, you know, maybe one day a world where, where we don't even need that terminology or to differentiate between mainstream insurance that actually exists for only about 10% of the planet and micro that is for the other 90%.
0: I think there's something really in that, isn't there? And I think as we were sort of talking about a little bit earlier on, the the idea that micro insurance is somehow big insurance with stuff taken away, it just sort of does it such a big disservice. Um, A friend of mine um, at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation called Costa Peric, uh, he said, people don't want to be included, they want to be active. And, and I think there's something really in that it's not about you know being nice to people and bring them in they want to actively participate in things and move them forwards and you know microinsurance or you know insurance more broadly is just giving people the tools to to really be active in their lives and and as you say to protect them and protect generations of, of people in them as well so um, it's fascinating thank you so much guys for joining us and thank you so much for being so active in and really sort of pursuing this and, and and making this change happen we'll definitely have to have you both back to um, to talk more and more about this and all the different sort of things that this sort of spurs off. But I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up the, the show and wrap up the conversation today. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about you and your company, Catherine?
2: So we have a website, um, uh, which is www.microinsurancenetwork.org. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We have, I think that our, our Twitter hash, uh, handle is at network flash and, uh, yeah, email us. We're a, a small but very
1: dedicated team and we, we answer our emails.
0: Very good. Itu. where can people find out a little bit more about you personally and BIMA?
1: So personally, I'm on LinkedIn. And then um, in terms of BIMA, um, so we have a global website. Um, so that's www.bimamobile.com. And then we also have, um, you know, websites for the local countries as well. So if you want to look for BIMA Philippines, for example, you can easily just Google that. Um, so yeah, that is where uh, we can be found.
0: Very good. Thank you so much again for joining us, both of you. And uh, as for me, you can find me lurking mostly on LinkedIn these days. Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you do like what you heard, then subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review, it super duper helps other people to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us pretty much on every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. Or if you want to drop us an email, feel free. It's podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. We'll be back with another. Sure, Tech Insider very, very soon. Goodbye.